The scripture reading is recorded in Isaiah verses 5, uh, chapter 58, verses 1 through 11, and Psalm 139, verse 1, and verses 13 through 18, subsequently. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This is the word of God. Please rise for the doxology. Uh, those of you who have been uh, following along uh, with us know that over the last month, I've been talking about what I've been calling upstream politics, not so much particular issues as the attitudes and perspectives that we need to bring to our hearts and to our minds upstream of our engagement on particular issues. Well, today, the last in the series, I'm going to do something rather risky. I'm going to travel downstream. And I'm going to look at you, uh, with you at a particular issue. Uh, the issue, I want to travel downstream and talk about caring for the weak and the marginalized, which is clearly on Isaiah's mind in Isaiah 58, with particular reference to women with difficult pregnancies and to their unborn children. But first of all, before I look at that complicated issue, I want to look at what Isaiah 58 says more generally about the calling of God to care for the marginalized. Isaiah 58 makes vivid that God earnestly wants us to share in his own love for our troubled world. To put it yet another way, God absolutely hates with all his being heartless religion. And to put the matter positively, he loves with all his being faith that spills over into care for people who are in need. We're going to look at both of them. Think of the first one. God fiercely opposes heartless religion. He hates it. I don't think hate is too strong a word. He hates it. Worship without social concern. Look at verse 1 in Isaiah 58. You should open your Bibles to it if you have it. So you can follow along. Isaiah 58. Don't just take my word for it. Paul, uh, uh, Isaiah writes, cry aloud. A series of imperatives here. And they all have to do with shouting. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. What's he saying? God is deeply upset. He's furious with his people. He tells Isaiah to shout at the top of his lungs, lift up your voice like a trumpet. What's wrong? What precisely is wrong? It's not that they aren't worshiping enthusiastically. Verse 2, they delight to draw near to God. That's what it says. That's what they're saying. Um, it's not that they, uh, uh, in other words, they are praying. They ask me, verse 2, for my righteous judgments. They're studying the Bible earnestly. They're studying the Bible regularly. Also, verse 2, they seek me daily. Who among us does that? They're doing it every day. They're seeking the Lord daily. They delight to know my ways and even elaborately fasting, verse 5. Bowing, spreading sackcloth and ashes under themselves. These people have a passionate and steady devotional life, habits of worship that might put yours and mine to shame. So what's wrong? Why is God so angry 
Why is he so furious? What's wrong, what upsets God so profoundly is that for all their expressions of devotion to him, they aren't anything like him. That's the problem. God loves people and delights to set people free from all that oppresses them, whereas his people are almost the opposite of that in every way. They are self-absorbed, verse 3. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. They're quarrelsome, verse 4. Behold, in other words, look at yourselves. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. They even are hitting each other. And they're oppressive, verse 3. Behold, look at yourselves. In the day of your fast, you oppress all your workers. Well, God is furious at all such behavior, especially by those who claim to know Him, who claim to love Him. Um, uh, 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 for it proves that they are completely ignoring Him. They're like spouses who repeatedly say, I love you, but never listen to anything that the other person actually says. They're loving a fantasy. They're loving a made-up God. They're using all the traditional God language, but they are not loving Him. They're completely ignoring what He is like, and that makes Him so upset. Now, the Lord puts this whole thing, which He starts off putting negatively, He puts very positively in verses 6 and 7. He says, He loves it when we love people the way He does. Verse, Carol read this so beautifully with the right emphasis on all the pronouns as we move through the text. Is not this the fast that I choose? Not the fasts that you're choosing. This is the one that I, the Lord, choose. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God is not uh, disinterested. He's not uninterested in what we do, in what goes on in our world. He cares profoundly about what goes on in our world. He loves, he chooses faith that spills over into social justice and concerns. And concerns. He loves it when we break yokes, when we humanize people. Yokes are for animals. Yokes are not for people. So he loves it when we take yokes off people's backs. For example, God loved it when Jesus broke the Sabbath by healing a woman who had been crippled for 18 years and answered his critics with these words. You'll find this in Luke chapter 13. Why, says Jesus to his critics, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, notice a person, not a beast, a person, a, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, why should she not be set free on the Sabbath day of all days from what bound her. God loved the work of the Blue Moon Group in Asheville, North Carolina, a very wonderful group that I became aware of and, and knew some of the people in it. He loved it when representatives 
This is what the Blue Moon Group was in Asheville, North Carolina. He loved it when representatives of the pro-choice women's health clinic, the pro-life crisis pregnancy center, and a number of area pastors got together to look for ways to care for all of the parties involved, mothers and children. And God loved it, another illustration, God loved it when the mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma, G.T. Bynum, who is white and who happens to be a Republican, reopened an investigation despite some fierce protests into the, 20, uh, into the 1921 race riots that left over 300 black citizens dead and 40 city blocks burned to the ground. Accosted for doing so at a restaurant in March 2020 by a white woman who was telling him she, she was making all the white people in the city of Tulsa look terrible. He responded this way. He said, look, lady, please hear me. If your ancestors had their entire neighborhood burned down and your neighbors murdered, wouldn't you want to find out what happened to them? That was a white mayor, a Republican. And God loved it when he said that to her. God hates it, in other words, when we don't care for the marginalized and suffering, and he absolutely loves it when we do. It's really that simple in Isaiah 58. He loves it, in short, whenever we seek to lift yokes, any sort of yoke, however large, however small. We all have friends who have yokes. They may be very small. God loves it when we say the word, do the thing that lifts that yoke. Yokes large and small, he's in the business of lifting. He loves it when we do that. Now, um, his heart is set, in fact, as it says in verse 6, on breaking not just occasional yokes, not just some yokes, but his heart is set on breaking every yoke, wherever you find him. He's not talking about eggs. Now, let me turn to the um, two particular groups of weak and marginalized that I said I was going to talk about. Unborn children on the one hand, and very often their mothers-to-be. Uh, think first of mothers-to-be. Now, I'm not necessarily thinking of all pregnant uh, women, though, though there are plenty of women who think that, uh, that, that any infringement upon their freedom is a form of yoke. So I, I get that, I understand it completely. But I'm especially concerned about those for whom pregnancy is turning out to be a, a tremendously difficult yoke. I'm thinking of those who are too poor, or too young, or too mentally unstable, or without sufficient infrastructure to raise a child. Years ago, Jeannie and I befriended and took in an undergraduate who had made a poor decision, gotten pregnant, and was under enormous pressure from her parents and, and boyfriend to end the pregnancy. And, and he felt God's smile, he felt God's happiness with us for having made that decision and see her through the end. God cares about people in those sorts of situations. He cares about those who are pregnant by the trauma of rape and incest. He's extraordinarily concerned. His heart goes out to them. Or to those whose child has a severe and incurable disease or to those who may want their child, but for whom childbirth will most likely kill them. Jeannie and I 
have such a friend. God would have us treat such women with dignity and care. The greater their, their vulnerability and need, the greater the dignity and care. Now, I don't mean to sound paternalistic. I'm a guy and I just said what I just said. But I'm trying to simply say we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need to care uh, and, and treat with dignity all those who are in any kind of need and difficulty. So that's the first group. But how about the other group? The unborn, that, that, that group of individuals who are growing inside uh, women uh, with difficult pregnancies. Uh, those ones are yoked in their own particular way. There are different kinds of yokes that come upon different ones of us given different situations. They are there in their mother's wombs through no choice of their own. They had no choice in their conception. They're there because of somebody else. Their continuing wives are completely in the hands of others. They have no say, no personal power. Their status as persons worthy of protection under the law is in question in our country, often denied completely. Now, I need at this point to, to take a little bit of a side, or at least do a little elaborating. I need to talk about the question of the Bible's account of the unborn. Are the unborn persons? Are they neighbors whom we should love as we love ourselves? Are they worthy, according to what the Bible teaches, as worthy of the same dignity and protection that their mothers are? Now, I'm going to say something that may make you, uh, it may upset some of you, but I'm going to say this. The Bible, I think, does not speak directly to that question. Though Psalm 139, which Carol also read, sheds some light on it. Let's look at it. At the very least, the unborn are from the very beginning God's handiwork. Verse 13. You, for, you Lord, formed my inward parts. You, Lord, knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 16. Your eyes, Lord, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God sees our quote-unquote unformed substance, our embryonic reality, as Derek Kidner puts it, and he works it with immense care, according to Psalm uh, 139, first knitting it together, verse 13, and then intricately weaving it together, verse 15. Notice another feature that's in this psalm. The text is littered with first-person singular personal pronouns. Did you notice that? You formed my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written the days that were formed for me. Now think about that. All those first-person singular personal pronouns. There's no suggestion here that there existed for David, for the person who wrote Psalm 139, some pre-me. I'm not saying pre-me. I'm saying pre-me. 
There was none in his mind, no pre-me, somewhere between his conception and birth, say before viability outside the womb, which would have been a concept of incomprehensible to him. There is an unbroken continuity, at least in David's mind, between the adults writing Psalm 139, me, and the creature that was conceived in his mother. Now, what do we make of all this? Given this account of our origins, or this rhapsody upon God's care for us throughout our lives, we would want to think twice, it seems to me, before intruding violently on this process, tearing the creature from the Creator's hands, even if we are not yet sure whether that creature is a full person in the biblical sense of personhood. And there's one final consideration in all of this, this one arising from Isaiah 58, the, the main passage that I'm talking to you about. Think again of the particular shape of the unborn child's yoke. He or she is utterly defenseless and exposed without power to escape if someone decides to take his or her life. Here it strikes me is an extreme example of marginalization and helplessness. The unborn creature being brought to an abortion is yoked not just to servitude and dehumanization, but is being yoked to certain death. That's the whole reason for the procedure. And for this reason is particularly worthy of our care and protection. Okay, I spent more time on the unborn than I spent on the women, but they're equally significant and they need to be considered. So I want to bring both of those things together of what I have just said in the light of Isaiah 58. It seems to me that the fast that God chooses, the fast that he wants us to choose in this difficult issue is the fast in which we do what we can to care for all of the parties concerned, to care for mother and for the creature that's growing within her, not one at the expense of the other. James 1.27 gives us a rough parallel when it tells us that true religion visits orphans and widows in their affliction. Now I realize that there's sometimes enormous ethical complexity in the both and approach to this issue. Not least because the mother is most definitely a person according to biblical testimony, while the creature within her, the unborn child, is, I think it's fair to say, presumably, but not absolutely, with absolute certainty, a person in the same sense, according to the Bible. But I think it's too easy simply to jettison the both-and approach because or when difficult cases arise. It's easier, it's wiser always to begin with and work from the notion that mother and child are both important and precious to God and therefore worthy of our attention and care. Okay, now the really hard question. What should the policy be on this complicated issue that concerns all the parties? What should the policy be? What should our public policy be? What should you and I, what should I stand for? What should you stand for? What should we advocate? What should we do? Where should we come out on this? 
precisely what laws and policies should be on the books. Who should have the final authority on what to do when a decision has to be made, and often a decision has to be made, precisely how should mothers-to-be, medical people, clergy, families, states, and the federal government, and the law interface uh, in every circumstance. How should you and I vote? Well, I am not going to answer that question. And I'm not going to answer it because I am a wimp. And because I don't want to jeopardize our tax-exempt status as a church. No, that is not why I'm not going to answer the practical policy question from the pulpit. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm not even going to tell you, though I, as you can tell, have a high view of the unborn, uh, to vote for a pro-life candidate, and for the reason I just gave you. Um, why? Because, and here let me elaborate the reason, or I'm going to give you the reason. Because policies and voting are matters of conscience. They're not biblical absolutes. Fallible strategies for moving things in what we think, given our fallible and imperfect understanding, is the right direction. And I need, speaking as I speak to you, from the pulpit, with the authority of the church and with the authority of Christ, I need to protect you from each other so that you don't make of each other second-class Christians over a matter of conscience. Paul writes a good bit in Scripture about the sanctity of the human conscience. And the preacher, if we have a high, we have a high view of the preaching ministry in, in our tradition, the preacher is a prophet. The preacher is trying his or her very best to speak for Christ, to bring the Word of God as it has application and implication to life situations. And it's a dangerous business. It's a scary business uh, because it can involve abusing the consciences of one's own people and leading to terrible divisions in the church that do not need to be there. Let me... Let me fill this out a little bit on this whole issue we're talking about. There exists, I know them, I know them, <laughs> I know many of them. There are pro-life people in God's church who in good conscience vote only for pro-life candidates, for candidates who, who identify themselves as pro-life candidates. They do so, perhaps, often, because they see such candidates contributing in one way or another to the reducing of abortions and to the possible overturn of R.V. Wade, say through Supreme Court appointments. But having said that, let me tell you about another group of people, and I know plenty of them. <laughs> there are also um, pro-life people in God's church who also in good conscience do not vote for pro-life candidates. And they make that choice, perhaps, often, because they do not think that Roe v. Wade will ever be reversed, and they might even think that it shouldn't be, at least aspects of it shouldn't be, and have become persuaded that the best way to reduce abortions is to support candidates who are often Democrats, 
whose policies make it easier for women with difficult pregnancies to carry their, uh, their children to term and beyond term. They see those policies as more fully pro-life, whereas the often pro-life policies tend to be pro-birth. And then they seem to stop as, as long as they guarantee that the birth will happen. So you have Christians on both sides of how to vote for candidates who claim to be pro-life. And it seems to me that we, in Christian charity, respecting one another's conscience, need to make room for one another. I'm not saying we therefore shouldn't argue with each other. Of course we should argue with each other. Uh, iron sharpens iron. We should talk with each other. We should listen. Listen at least twice as much as we talk. You know, there's this wonderful rabbinic proverb, the good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth, so that we listen twice as much as we speak. And these days we're speaking 18 times as much as we listen. And that's the horror of what's going on in public discourse. It's a terrible state of affairs. And I sometimes fear for whether our, our country will be able to survive the inability of people uh, to actually listen to each other and so on. So, there you have it. I, you may go away disappointed because I haven't told you exactly what to do except to think hard and love well and work through the issue with humility and so on. But I need to say one final thing. Uh, as I come to an end, I feel, having brought up this issue, that I must speak in closing to anyone listening who has had an abortion or is close to someone who has. Jeannie and I have numerous friends like that. I want to speak to any who, before today, have never heard a biblical argument for the likely personhood of the unborn and are now suddenly grappling with what it means for them, or for their friends, or for their children. Uh, I, I, I want to speak to any who have chosen abortion even though they had misgivings about it when they did, and feel terrible about it now. I want to speak to any who are still confused about the issue, and I wouldn't be surprised that you are. It's not an easy one. And finally, I want to speak to any who have cavalierly or even violently gotten someone pregnant and then have done nothing about it. That's another whole category of human beings uh, who exist in our country these days and all around the world. What do I have to say to, to you all, in, wherever you are, maybe, maybe you're in none of those groups that I just mentioned, but you probably are. What do I say? Well, I say that repentance may be necessary. I would say this is definitely the case for the last group, those who have cavalierly gotten other people pregnant. We must all, in any event, turn to God for help. We need God's help. We need God's help, frankly, in everything. Jesus said, apart from, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do precisely nothing. You can't do anything that really matters unless you come to me and abide in me. So one way or another, we need to come to him. And in some cases, we may need to turn around rather dramatically, admitting to a great wrong. And here's what I want to say. I want to say some, I want to, I want to leave you with some incredibly good and encouraging news. If we turn to the God of Isaiah 58, 
to the God of the Bible, to the God who's revealed himself in Jesus. If we turn to him, when we turn to him, we will encounter an extraordinarily wonderful person. I mean, listen to Jesus' words where he talks yoke language, language that was reminiscent of Isaiah 58. Jesus says in, 11, in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And notice, he doesn't clarify what he means by heavy laden. You may be heavy laden with guilt. You may be heavy laden with oppression. You've been oppressed. You may be heavy laden with, with some great injustice that's been done to you or with some great injustice that you have perpetrated. Jesus doesn't, doesn't differentiate. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you an extra burden. I will make you miserable. No, if you know the passage, that's not what he says. He says, and I will give you rest. I will give you shalom in your life. I will give you peace. Take my yoke. Ah, there's the language of yoke. Yokedness. There is a yoke out there which is a good one. <laughs> Jesus says, take my yoke on you. Learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the God of Isaiah 58. Jesus said he was seeing me as seeing the Father. And he is welcoming and gentle as is the Father. He is humble and kind as is the Father. He does not take your sin or my sin lightly. He never has and he never will. And neither should we. But he is ready and able to lift every yoke off our shoulders, including our guilt and confusion, because he has freely borne in our place the yoke of our punishment, the yoke of the cross. I want you to just reflect for a few minutes on verses 8 and 9 in Isaiah 58. Reflect on the strange, overwhelmingly troubling injustice of Jesus' final hours. Unlike his people and unlike you, Jesus had kept God's fast his whole life. Jesus had healed the sick. Jesus had fed the hungry. He had taken in all sorts of people and he had spoken up for the oppressed. And yet, and yet, and yet, none of the good promises which Isaiah, which God promises through Isaiah to, to those who keep God's fast, came to Jesus. And in fact, in his final hours, the curses that God pronounces over Israel for their failure to keep his fast are what fell upon him. Look at verses 8 and 9, and I'm just going to insert the word not. He, his light, the light for Christ, did not break forth as the dawn, only darkness and desolation fell upon him. Verse 8. His healing did not spring up speedily. Verse 8. Only a slow and terrible death. And the glory of the Lord was not his rear guard. Verse 8. Outflanking those who hated him. His enemies rather spit on him, laughed at him, beat him, and tortured him to death. And perhaps the most troubling thing of all, verse 9, Jesus called 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his father did not answer. None of the promises of Isaiah 58 became true for Jesus, the only person who had ever kept God's fast perfectly. Why? Because of God's plan for us, because of his love for us, the Father and the Son together, because when Jesus died, Jesus was bearing our selfish hypocrisy and every other sin as if they were his own. And he was enduring the anger of God, the fury of God for them so that we would never have to do it. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Take my yoke upon you because I have taken your yoke upon me. There's no transgression, none, that's too big, that's too horrendous for the cross to bear away. There is no mistake that we cannot hope, uh, that we cannot with hope bring to the person who died at the cross and lives again to give us new life. So please, wrestle with this issue. But as you wrestle with this issue, as you deal with it in your life, in the life of your friends, when you wrestle with how you're going to vote and all that sort of stuff, never, never, never lose sight of the one who bore your yoke to hell, who bore your sins away, and who welcomes you back again and again and again and again. Every time you turn and repent, you're brought back into his presence, and there he is with his arms wide open, loving you, saying, I'm here, and I'll, I'll help you. I'll help you be the person I want you to be, the person that you actually, deep down, want to be too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are um, present here by your Spirit, and you are beckoning to all of us with these wonderful words from Matthew 11, and we pray for the grace to take um, your yoke upon us. We pray for the grace to listen to you, to submit to you, to come under your protection and lordship so that we might live. And we pray this for your namesake. Amen.